So this may be a rhetorical question for you, but do you understand that change is hard in business? Of course, it is hard. And then knowing that change is hard, you build a change management plan. You hire an expert to help bring everybody along on the change. But what happens if the change does not go as smoothly? Then you blame it on people because maybe they're just not on board. You might blame it on the consultant or the facilitator. They just don't have this capability. But maybe we should blame ourselves because we don't understand the integral parts of what change is and why we resist it. Wouldn't it be better to understand the causes of why people resist change and then we could approach change in a better way? My conversation with Rick enlightens us. Let's listen. People resist for a good reason. We may not like the fact that they're resisting, but they're resisting for good reasons. Level one is, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're talking about. If I don't understand what you're talking about, I'm not going to go along with something because I just doesn't make sense to me. The second one is, I don't like it. And this is an emotional reaction, and it's based on fear. There's something about this idea that scares me. So it's a very emotional thing. And one of the problems with that is in organizations, it's really hard to talk about that. Third one is, I don't like you. The problem with that one isn't so much that they don't like you, but they don't have trust in or confidence in you to lead something like this. So all three of those are working all the time. And those three levels of energy, if you will, are working for us or against us. So you need people to understand. You need people to go, wow, that sounds good. I like that. And three, they need to have enough trust and confidence in you that they're willing to go along with some things, even that they don't quite understand because there's a good enough relationship. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and want to thank you again for joining us on another episode of the Drop-In CEO Podcast, where I get to speak to amazing leaders and share their insights with you. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you great programming. And it is my honor to share the mic with my fantastic guest, Rick Maurer. Today's guest, Rick, he is a speaker, author, consultant, and an expert on helping leaders avoid resistance to change. And since the publication of his book, Beyond the Wall of Resistance, in the 1990s, Rick's opinion has been sought by the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, and by NBC Nightly News, Fortune, and many other media outlets. Some of the largest companies in the world asked for his advice on ways to avoid resistance to change and ways to build strong support for changes and other big projects. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you, Deb. It's good to be here. 
You know, to my listeners, again, I want to draw you into this conversation. The reason why I wanted to have this conversation with Rick for you is that we talk about change and we all are going through a lot of change and we will continue to go through change. But the topic of resistance, you know, I sometimes wonder, is it really resistance or we simply don't equip you with the tools needed to understand what the change is and how to move forward? And Rick is an expert in this. We had a great discovery call and I can't wait to bring his insights to you. So Rick, I would love for you to share a little bit personally your journey and about the work that you're doing now that's impacting so many. Good. I'm glad to. And by the way, what you just said about is it really resistance or is it sometimes we don't equip people with tools? I think you're absolutely right on target. I think there are other reasons too, but I think that's a big one. In graduate school, I was studying working with emotionally disturbed kids in schools. It turns out it was a radical program. I didn't know it at the time. And the philosophy of the program is a lot of these kids aren't disturbed. It's the schools that are disturbed. And if you can change schools, you'll have fewer kids acting, you know, in, in disturbed ways. And I bought that philosophy then, and I still buy it. The problem was, you can imagine, I just get out of school. I'm 25 years old. It's my first real job ever, other than being in the army. And I'm saying to teachers, hi, I'm here to help. And you can imagine, you can imagine teachers with 20 years experience says, well, that, that's a very nice young man. You sit right over there. And the moment we need some help, we're going to call on you. I mean, I just, I realized, or I felt like I had really good ideas and I was just awful at getting them across. I mean, I was so arrogant after two years experience that I sent a letter to the superintendent of my school system, which was the 10th largest in the United States and said, I think I see a problem and how we can improve elementary school education. And by the way, I think I could run that project. Two years experience. And so they held the meeting with me because they didn't want to upset the union or whatever. But you could just tell in the meeting that it was just being done for politeness sake. How long do I need to spend with this jerk so I can say thank you and we're going to, you know. And all of that just stayed with me. And then I started studying how organizations worked, and I got interested in leadership and conflict and started studying Gestalt psychology, and their view of resistance was eye-opening for me, that everything I could read in the business press was that we need to overcome resistance. That verb is used a lot, overcome. And the Gestalt approach was, no, you're actually going to create more resistance when you try to overcome. And that intrigued me. And so I started playing with that and ended up building on that foundation, the work that turned into that book in the 90s and has frankly been the focus of my work for 25 years is how do you, how do you build support and how, how do you respect the resistance in the first place so that you can work with it? You know, I love the, the concept of respect the resistance. And again, whatever that resistance is, it's a thing. It exists. It's a re somebody's reality that has to be first understood, not necessarily overcome. But before I go there, I want to go back in your journey because this resonates with an article that I just wrote. You talk about having this idea, like you felt really, really strongly about this idea and you were appeased that <laughs> it didn't resonate with what their curriculum, their agenda was at the time. And and obviously, you had the fortitude to keep going and explore this concept and develop it further. But when I think about, you know, I talk to different types of leaders, the CEO, the entrepreneur, the emerging leader, and I say, 
we have to look for these individuals that show these kinds of characteristics. I call you the spark. It's that person that just has high energy. I got this idea and they're just really, really want to get it across. And sometimes we don't equip our leaders to recognize that quality that there may have been something in that idea, but maybe the way you articulated at that time and moment didn't resonate. But leadership needs to recognize those ideas and maybe how to evolve it and, and develop it so that maybe it could align with what they're doing. But kudos for you for pressing on. Others, unfortunately, <laughs> will leave the situation and we lose out on the creativity of our future leaders. I just <laughs> I had to go there because it is a frustration of mine. But let's just keep going. I love the thing that you talk about is overcoming resistance. You don't prefer that terminology. Let's dig a little bit deeper into overcoming or what is it that we must do, according to your insights, to manage or navigate through that resistance? Well, actually, I'm picking up on something that you just said. I'll put it in my own words. Is people resist for a good reason. We may not like the fact that they're resisting. But they're resisting for good reasons. And I ended up creating a model of three levels. And level one is, I don't get it. It's really simple. I don't understand what you're talking about. And the reason that's resistance, if I don't understand what you're talking about, I'm not going to go along with something because it just doesn't make sense to me. And it can be really simple. Like you could be the head of finance and I work in information technology or marketing and you're talking in a language that might as well be some ancient language. I, I have no idea what it means. So that's the simplest one to work with. The second one is I don't like it. And this is an emotional reaction and it's based on fear. There's something about this idea that scares me. I could lose my career. I could lose my status. I'm, I'm not going to have any power. What happens to all those projects that I've invested time in? So it's a very emotional thing. And one of the problems with that level is in organizations, it's really hard to talk about that. So imagine that you're making a presentation and I'm in the, the audience and you happen to use the word downsizing. And just suddenly I and probably a hundred other people go, uh-oh. And then you say, hey, you know, I realize I'm saying some provocative things. Do you have any questions? I am not going to raise my hand and going, Deb, I'm having a level two reaction to what you're saying. I mean, we just don't do that. But what I'm likely to do is say, Deb, could you go back to the last slide? No, the one before that. I have a question about the timeline. That's a nice level one question. You can answer it. Well, could you go over the budget projections again? Once again, it's intellectual. And so you walk out of the meeting and somebody says, how'd it go? And you said, great. I mean, I gave time for question and answers. People ask questions. I answered them. So you were acting in good faith. The problem was the resistance wasn't at that level one area. It was at an emotional level, which is hard. So he got, I don't get it. I don't like it. The third one is, I don't like you. Yeah. And the, the problem with that one isn't so much that they don't like you, but they don't have trust in, or confidence in you to lead something like this. So it might be, oh, here he comes again. He just read a new book. Uh oh, we're in trouble. Or it may have nothing to do with you personally, but have everything to do with who you represent. Like, hi, I'm from headquarters. I'm here to help. Or when I said, I'm a brand new teacher. I'm here to help you people that it's, I represent every young man or woman who took a job in a school and said, oh, I see what's wrong. I can help it. 
you know, it's so all three of those are working all the time. And those three levels of energy, if you will, are working for us or against us. So you need people to understand. You need people to go, wow, that sounds good. I like that. And three, they need to have enough trust and confidence in you that they're willing to go along with some things, even if they don't quite understand because there's a good enough relationship. This is incredible insight. And thank you for that, because I have been witness to what I believe was while an unfortunate situation of a downsizing of a company, the leader did everything right versus what you said wrong. Because by the end of the day, what was the outcome? Yes, people will lose jobs. But at the end of the day, there's the human factor about respecting the individuals and leaving a lasting impact. And in this situation, I was actually part of some interim leadership, helping to this senior leader navigate the change of not only downsizing, but also maintaining continuity with their clients. They came in with all of the intellectual property that they need explaining what is needed to happen and why. So again, that's a little bit of a respect thing, but then, you know, really providing the support. So at every step along the way, I saw this leader's behavior, respecting the humans, helping them. What are your concerns? How can we help you after this? And even in the moment while they're still doing their day job, supporting them to the utmost. And I was also part of that. And then ultimately, even though they had to shut the doors, I know that everybody respected this leader because they were treated with humanity. So change does not have to be bad, but you have to help the human understand, which is to their intellect, and then address all of that emotional stuff, but maintain the trust. So yes. critical. So yeah. critical. That's that's really well put. Your concepts are just so easy to understand. And again, when I do the show, it is also for me to gain your insights because I carry that forward also in the work that we do. So there's a little bit of uh, selfish agenda here. I love learning <laughs> from others, but obviously these are great insights for people. So I guess I'd like to just move a little bit and bring this to a practicality. So when you serve leaders and organizations, what is their current state? What is their avatar or profile that they're at that they either decide to bring you in or they're forced to bring you in? What does that situation look like? Because I want other leaders that are maybe listening to this to see themselves in the people that you've already served. So what, what do they look like and where are they at on their journey? It's actually a more complex question than it sounds, or at least the answer is more complex than it sounds. For a while, I thought, if I just ask the right questions at the beginning and make sure that we're in sync with each other, that we then can do some good work. And so, for instance, I was being considered by a group that was going through a merger that was happening within their organization. So it isn't something you would see in the Wall Street Journal, but it was a thousand people. And I said, I'm glad you're considering me. My work has to do with support and resistance. And I just have two questions for you. And the first is, how important is it going to be for you to build support for this merger from other stakeholders, one to five? And everybody said four or five. And I said, that's good because uh, we can work together. Because my if you said three, like, yeah, yeah, maybe we need it. Uh, yeah, my stuff will be okay, but it's not going to make a big difference. And if you said one or two, you're going to waste your money with me. And, and for some leaders, they would go, I'm not worried about building support. I don't care. There was a guy, a guy named Al Dunlap, and he was the head of Sunbeam and then I th some other big company. He had, the, he had a nickname, and that was uh, oh, Chainsaw Al. I mean, he just, you know, he would go in and say, okay, 
cut these heads, do this, do that, like it was a chainsaw. And there are leaders like that, and there are leaders who are successful. They do not, they don't hire me. But I want to make sure that they know that, you know, that because sometimes people will bring me in because they can say, oh, we brought Rick Maurer in and he wrote a book. And so that way, if, if they mess up, it must be Rick Maurer's fault. The second question I asked them with this client was, how willing are you to be influenced by the people you're trying to influence? I think that's a great question. I, first time I asked it, people looked away and they kind of, it was embarrassing. And I knew I was onto something. And most of the people said four or five. And I said, this is a hard one and we can work together. I'm sure those people were sincere when they scored both those questions high. The problem is we get into the day-to-day work of change and there are so many moving pieces. And often in organizations, you're working on a project while you're working on all this other stuff and nobody said, hey, we're going to clear your calendar so you can work on this new thing. So people get into a meeting and they're saying, they're basically thinking, how do I get out of here as quickly as possible? Fill in this form, let's fill it in. You know, uh, do a template on this. Okay, let's do this. So the whole system is, is geared against people doing what they think is right. So when I'm working, I really want to be very, very clear, like right up front. I'm glad you scored high, but here's the reality. In fact, I've been working a lot on this, and I just wrote this, this book called Seizing Moments of Possibility. And it's basically not how do you come up with a new plan for the human part of change, not how do you add on new events, because nobody has time for that. It's how do you blend support into what you're already doing? If I could use an analogy, I love coffee. And I'm glad that my coffee shop is now back open. And I used to go and stand in line and there would invariably be somebody there who would order a latte. And never once did I hear that person go, give me a latte, but hold the milk. Because you can't do that. Latte is a seamless blend of steamed milk and espresso. You can have other ingredients, but the two essential ingredients are milk and coffee. And when it's done well by a good barista, you can't tell where the coffee ends and the milk picks up. It's just goodness. I think we need to be able to do that with our most boring planning meetings, our most routine tasks, and say, how do I begin to build support into what we're already doing? Rather than, like this client I had said, no, 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 once we're done with all of this, then we're going to get other people involved. And that that this, that stuff they're doing, lasted months. And they're leaving lots of people out. And they were doing it with good faith. It's just, I wish I had thought more about this stuff. What prompted me to actually work on this book is how do you blend stuff in and start really simply to do it? So. I I love your approach on that because so often we think of, let's kick off this new initiative and people roll their eyes and say, I'll weather the (laughs) storm. And, you know, when all of this is said and done, I'll get back to my day job. I'll call my wife or husband or partner or whatever and say, I'm going to be working a few more late hours because I got all this other stuff on top that I have to do. But I, I truly believe that 
Yeah, you bring up a really good point because I I do drop-in consulting work. I'll help people with a technical issue because that's what the burning platform is. But I often see they need leadership development. They need some simplification. I need to make their life a little bit less chaotic because ultimately, and I talk about this in the CEO's Compass, peace of mind is your true north. And that's what people ultimately want. They want to come out on the other side whole. So I try to blend leadership development while I'm in there, trying to do the technical work so that when I leave, yes, we've achieved the goal, we've gotten through the integration, the merger, and what have you, but people have more skills that then they're more equipped to handle the next change, whether it's being able to express themselves or asking better questions. Well, I don't understand your presentation. Help me to understand. Blend that coaching and mentoring while you're doing it, not in addition. So I love, love, love your work. (laughs) And I, I mean, I love the example you're giving too is taking what you're hired to do as some technical kind of thing and saying, where's the human part in that? Exactly. And I, mean, I mean, yes, you and I might shrug our shoulders and go, of course, but it's that's not what's uppermost in the mind of a lot of people working in organizations. If they've got a technical project yeah. or you know, whatever, it gets in the way. So. We're definitely on to something. I was just interviewed yesterday by somebody uh, about a, a couple of weeks ago, and it just aired yesterday. And they too said, you know, yes, I can help build a pipeline, build strategic plans for their sales force, et cetera. But we really try to marry the mindset issues associated with leaders being able to make decisions, get more sales, et cetera, because we find that it's the blend of the two that really might be holding their back, not necessarily the bells and whistles, the tools and the tactics that we employ. But question for you, because I, I'm on the book journey and there's a lot of authors that I interview But question for you, seizing moments of possibilities, ways to trigger energy and forward momentum, the book. And I know you've written several, but what is it like writing the book? What is that journey? What do you gain from it or learn from yourself as you go through a creative project and see it come out on the end? I'm curious because there's there's always something in there. Well, where all this started, I had already written a couple of books and I got really interested in this gestalt approach to resistance, but they were using a lot of psychological mumbo jumbo. And at the time I was working with a lot of chemical engineers and IT people. I could not go in and say, you know, I believe people are retroflecting. I mean, I would just, I'd be out the door in a minute. And so I was trying to come up with a language that they would get. And out of that, I just started playing with ideas and talking with clients. And for me, it was discovery. The writing process was discovery. In fact, in the first version of Beyond the Wall of Resistance, I have chapter seven, I think it was, is where I'm going to talk about my model for resistance. But I didn't have that model yet. I kind of had the outcomes. And so I'm writing all around it. And there's this chapter, empty chapter, just looming there. And I, I happen to be a fan of writer's block. I mean, I think a writer's block really is that something's churning. So I shouldn't try to paper over it. I know it can be frustrating, but I trust it. And so I was just sitting with a notepad and I just started drawing these circles. And I go, huh, it's almost like there's levels. I wonder what they are. And so I just started testing them out with people. And people go, well, I don't get what you're talking about there. Or, that doesn't make sense or blah, blah, blah. And maybe there's a fourth level and maybe there's this, but it was the ideas could get refined. So a big part of the writing process for me when it's really fun is a discovery process. You know, 
I, I just want to react to that. I mean, you know, first of all, one of my superpowers is I active listening and I got to make sure I don't react. But you really triggered something in myself. And again, as I relate it back to people listening here, you know, sometimes if you have a report or you have to come up with this new initiative, just be comfortable with the fact that you are going through change and the block is a good thing. Just be patient. As I will tell you, as I'm writing the books, the CEO's compass, it wasn't the CEO's compass, wasn't sure what it was, but my approach to helping senior leaders navigate the change, initially, it was a picture of a house with a foundation and three pillars and the roof, etc. And I was constantly bolting things on and I would do presentations and people says, wow, that makes me think differently. But you brought up a really important point about as you were writing the book, the techno speak, the psychological language, the language didn't resonate with people. And so as I started drawing on a piece of paper, I started drawing a circle. Hmm. And then I started drawing the points of the circle, all the different points that I had discovered. And then it became the CEO's compass. Huh. All of those points, all of a sudden, and then I started talking in terms of points, compass points, off track, and then starting to test out my different elements uh, to solve this business issue. And it started resonating. So again, love what you share. Mm. The journey, the block is okay. Be patient. Test. Chapter seven gets written. There you go. By the way, there's something that you said that is really important to me, and it's something that I get complimented on, and I'm really happy about it. And that is that people will say, you know, your ideas, there, there's really depth there. I'm glad of that. Yogi Berra would have said deep depth, but nevertheless, there's depth there. But they said, but you make it really simple. So I think the compass is, I, everybody can get a compass. And now you can get as complex with it as you want. But yes, there, and I see the cop, you know, the cover of your book. And I, I think that's a really key thing because sometimes we consultants want to earn our keep by making up really complex theories and models. And I've been guilty of that, but it's just people just are rolling their eyes. They're going, what in the world are, are they doing? And one of the in undergraduate school, I was in music education. I had to learn how to teach every band and orchestral instrument once I went out to work in schools. I decided not to do that. But what I learned from that was how do you put a clarinet in a 10-year-old's hand, and I don't play clarinet, and teach them. So they actually get it. So I could say, well, you know, Deb, the theory of a vibrating reed and the, and the harmonics, stuff, you know, I could be doing all kinds of garbage that I learned. That little kid is just holding it. What do you do? And I, not realizing at the time, that really became a foundation piece. Is how, how do you simplify? A clarinet is a hard instrument. So is a violin. So is, you know, most instruments. How do you take something that complex and start so that people can go, oh, that's a nice sound. So That's a beautiful point because we are all smart. We are celebrated and promoted because of our intellect. But the moment that you can translate it into the language that people can understand, like you say, the resistance, the change, the learning of a new technique like a musical instrument, as soon as you can put it in the context of say, and they say, oh, the O factor. You know you've connected with the human. You have so many topics. I would love to just go into something else. You talk also about why every book you got on change and project management should come with a sticker, warning, batteries not included. I'm curious. What do you mean by that? 
Good. I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. I, I love that phrase. A friend of mine, David Newman, gave me that saying. When I look at my shelves in my back office, I've got you know many, many books on good project management, change management. And I mean, there really are some very good planning tools there. And what's missing from all of them, including stuff that I've written, is they don't run by themselves. And so you can go through all of those steps and half-heartedly fill out the forms and say, well, this would be good enough. Well, that'll be good enough. And you end up completing the thing, but you don't have anything at the end. All you did is go through the motions. And what those need is battery power from day one until it, whatever that change is, is making the kind of change in the organization or in the world that you want it to do. And we miss there are these big pockets of potential energy that can work for us if we pay attention. And if we don't pay attention, they turn into resistance and they work against us. So, wow. <laughs> so, so, so the planets are lining up for me right now because, and, and I, I have a feeling um, this client may actually be listening to this podcast, but, you know, recently I dropped in to help them technically achieve a compliance certification. And technically you can check the box and generate all the forms and procedures and you can pass an audit. But at the end of the day, it was confusing. It was overwhelming because it was so different from what they did going forward. And one of the things that I saw in between was how can I make their life simpler? So that was the approach, the how, the batteries, and then saying, you know, this change we're going through is actually going to help your company. You're going to be able to look at where you have holes in your processes, where you don't have redundancy in your resources, because if somebody left or a process broke, the business is in trouble and you can't support your customers. So it's actually a risk-based exercise. And with that, I think that really is what you talk about. The batteries, what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve here? More far beyond just reading the book and filling out the form. Yeah. <laughs> we need to have the batteries in us too. We need to be energized just as well as other people or else we're going to die young. Energy. You know, that's a whole nother discussion. Again, people say, oh, that's woo woo and I'll get my mat and go out and just sit by the sunset or something. But you know what? Just don't laugh at that. There is something about without yourself being whole, there is no business, there is no job, there is no sustainability of your needs, wants, and desires. So you do have to take care of your own energy. <laughs> yeah. So this has been an amazing interview. I know you have so much more to offer. I would just love for you to start bringing home points or things that people should be thinking about. Because again, this is a great concept. We're reading the book by listening to this podcast, but ultimately people have to turn what we have shared into action. And so as we think about the work that you have done when it comes to resistance to change or navigating change, what are some things that people should either think about or they can do now to start putting better practices into place? Okay. First of all, I just want to mention the Seizing Moments of Possibility book is free. I, I'm having it on my, this is an experiment for me, but it's, there's no sales thing at the end of it. It's just, it's a free book. It's, it's an ebook. And in it, I have a lot of application activities. So my intent is that people will read it while they're about to work on some project and they can say, huh, what's going on here? And I just want to give you a couple of examples of that. The first thing to do, and it's, on one hand, it's the simplest, but it can also, people might go, whoa, why, why would I waste time with that? Is simply observe. The great worldly philosopher and baseball player, Yogi Berra, once said, you can observe a lot just by watching. 
And so what I urge my clients to do and what I try to do is when you're not in a leadership position or you know, you're in a meeting, you're just a member of the meeting, or maybe you're at an airport, watch people in action and just see what you notice and forget about any theory you know about personality or anything. Just observe. That is absolutely the most important starting point is what do you see in front of you and how are you reacting to it? And then the second thing is I talk about, it's really good to have a lens then. And so I show people how they can use those three levels. I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't like you. But I also say there are other ways to do it. Ono, O-H-N-O, was one of the pioneers in the Toyota production system. And he has a thing where you go out on the production line and you just stand there, apparently for hours, and observe. You know, And then he'll quiz you. And if you don't do a good job, you'll have to stand there for another few hours. Well, I would... I did it for 30 minutes once. I mean, it was all part of another training program that I was part of. I was amazed how much I noticed. And I'm not an expert in Lean Six Sigma, which all these people were. But I was wondering, I wonder why that guy walks from here all the way over there, picks up a piece, walks all the way back. You know, there would be these things that were just standing out that would be like, huh, I wonder why that's going on. And it's that kind of stuff that can really allow us to say, Maybe we could do it a better way. Maybe we can make it more efficient. Maybe we could do. So the whole book, the intent is to begin not making big changes, but how do we tweak what we're doing already? Do you have time for a quick story? Oh, absolutely. Keep okay. going. So you started with talking about a downsizing thing. A guy named Ted Castle, he runs, I think he's the owner of a company called Rhino Foods, and they make dessert ingredients. So they would sell to Ben and Jerry's and other candy and ice cream makers. And it's a small company. And he got up in front of the employees, about 90 people, and he said, we are in a real downturn. The whole market's in a downturn. So Ben and Jerry's and the others are not buying our product right now. It's not something we're doing wrong. It's just there's a slump, and I don't see the end to it. And we're at risk of having to close our doors. And I've, I've looked at all the ways we could save money. We've tried them. And the only thing left to do, I believe, is downsize. And I, I really hate to say it. We've never done that. But that's what we got to do. And then here's where a moment of possibility comes in. He said, you know, if any of you have an idea for a way that we can save significant sums of money or actually improve the revenue, I, I will happily consider them. So 90 people, they gave him 111 suggestions. So all he did to that meeting that typically is a really painful meeting and people hide behind their slides, he just asked that question. I can't, I'm, you know, he's not guaranteeing anything. He's not going to be a softy. But if anybody has something I haven't thought about, I'm willing to consider it. That, to me, is a brilliant move. And he didn't need a consultant to tell him that. I mean, it just, and I love, it's, uh, I love that story. Uh, there's such strength in leadership by just asking a well-targeted question. Yes, yes. You've been an amazing guest. I know people are going to want to learn more about you. Certainly in the show notes, we're going to put connecting to the book that you are releasing for free so that people can gain your insights, make some change, but also maybe reach out and connect to you. So how can people get in touch with you? Well, the best way would be to go to my website 
or email. My website is rickmauer.com and that's spelled R-I-C-K-M-A-U-R-E-R, uh, M-A-U-R-E-R, uh, dot com or rick at rickmauer.com. You can send me an email. Those are, those are absolutely the best ways. I'm on LinkedIn too. I don't use any other social media other than to look at cat videos. So I, <laughs> which I don't do very often. So. Well, Rick, this has been so much fun. I am truly inspired by your insights and being able to help me to understand as well as our listeners understand that change does not have to be scary. You don't have to be fearful if done the right way. And they can certainly learn a lot from you and apply it to their situation. You've been a fantastic guest. I wish you continued success and thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Deb. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.